today from the global lane, rise of the militias. As U.S. combat troops begin their pullout from Iraq, Christians fear the future. Iranian-backed militias and the Turkish-backed militias is extremely worrying and people want to leave. No hibernation for the Russian bear. How prepared is the USA for a new destabilizing onslaught of cyber attacks? The government is simply incompetent in implementing very effective strategies. Terror threat? The U.S. Attorney General directs the FBI to investigate parents speaking out at school board meetings. What they are trying to do is chill speech. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. A majority of voters in Iraq this week stayed home instead of casting their ballots to elect a new government. Only 41% of those eligible actually voted. And initial results show the top vote-getter was Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. His party gained seats in the parliament. So as American combat troops reportedly begin their withdrawal from Iraq, what might this election result and the completion of the troop withdrawal by the end of this year mean for the country's future, especially for the dwindling Christian community? Well, joining us is award-winning international journalist Janine Giovanni, author of the new book, The Vanishing, Faith, Loss, and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets. Janine, it's a pleasure to talk with you to gain some insights based on your three and a half decades of experience in the region. So Iraqi Christians are extremely worried. And I know in your book you write, quote, it was in Mosul that I first realized that all of these ancient people were in grave danger of disappearing. So how close are we today of seeing an Iraq without Christians? Hi, Gary. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, well, I first I have to say that we hope this will never happen because of the ancient community that they are, not just in Iraq, but in Syria, in Egypt, in Gaza, in the other places I, I talk about it and write about in my book. Um, these are people whose roots, whose historic roots and whose faith go back centuries. Um, we estimate, and this is a guesstimate because there's no way of knowing, the census, the last census in Iraq um, was taken nearly 50 years ago. So it's very hard to determine now, but we do know the numbers have drastically by half a million gone down. So given that the economic situation is so terrible, climate change, um, Iraq is the fifth worst country on the UN's list. Um, the fact that there's basically for young people, there's no industry. Um, and, and more than anything, their fear of radical groups. Um, back in 2014, when the Islamic State rolled through the Nineveh Plain, they basically um, subjugated, terrorized, killed the Christians. Um, they burnt down their farms. They destroyed the church. They trampled the crucifixes. Um, and it was it was a truly terrible time. So this kind of fear of more radical groups that could arise, um, particularly the the um, the Iranian backed militias and the Turkish backed militias um, is extremely worrying. And people want to leave, but they're torn because this is their ancestral land, the land of the prophets, the land where the apostles walked and and um, preached. And so if they leave, they know that these communities will cease to exist. In northern Iraq and Erbil, you tell of a waiter who said Christians are faced with a miserable choice. And it seems, Janine, like it's always between radical Islam or the protection offered to them by secular-minded dictatorships like Assad in Syria, El Sisi in Egypt. So 
Has it always been that way for Christians, or is this something fairly new in recent years? Well, that's a really great question. Um, you know, usually I think the Christian groups, they, they sought protection, and it happened that their protection was under the time of Saddam Hussein or under Assad, who is an Alawi, a branch of Shia. Um, and so the Christians sought that they could be, that they, they'd have stronger rights, that they would, you know, they wouldn't face the kind of persecution, discrimination, or even slaughter that they might have um, under under more, let's say, liberal, not that that would really exist, um, rule. So, you know, Saddam Hussein, this stretches back 40, 50 years. The Assad clan has been there for more than 40 years. Um, but on the other hand, when these people, like when Saddam fell, uh, they began to really feel this fear. What's going to happen to us next? Where are we going to go? How do we protect ourselves? This sense that they could be wiped out is is a deep trauma for them. And you have to remember, Gary, also, these people have survived thousands of years of persecution, of purges, of plagues, of occupations, of many armies that want it to destroy them. And this is simply because they want it to practice their faith. I want to ask you about Egypt now. You write that the words of many people uh, echoed in your head as you left Cairo. And you said, I don't think this is the end of the story. The story's not over. And I'm thinking primarily here of the Coptics in Egypt. What has sustained that community and other ancient Christian communities in the land of the prophets over the years? And, and there is hope, right? I think what sustains them is faith. They have the most extraordinary faith. I mean, I as, as a Christian, um, I was in awe of their resilience, how embattled they were, and yet how they kept going, how they the churches were full. Now, Egypt has a very different situation because while the cops were about 6% of the population, but again, we don't know um, because census, it's, you know, census have not been taken for many, many years. And, um, you know, it, it's not really clear how many people emigrate every year. Um, but the cops, they're big there, there are laws built into the Egyptian constitution which prevent them from things like um, building more churches or um, serving in the highest ranks of the military or the government, or even marriage laws which prohibit things like um, their, their rights once they're married, their economic and, and legal rights. Um, they're more, I mean, I'd say the cops of all the groups I studied, I'm more concerned probably for the Gazan Christians and the Iraqi Christians because they really are under threat. And those communities, um, you know, you've been there, Gary, and you know when you walk through those places, you feel that land is really the land of the prophets. And you feel the weight of history and you feel their commitment to their land, to their faith, I've never been so moved as to going to masses and services in in these places because the people's faith have really rooted them through some of the most tumultuous times in modern in the modern Middle East. The book is The Vanishing Faith, Loss and the Twilight of Christianity in the Land of the Prophets. Janine De Giovanni, thank you for sharing your time and insights with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. You've likely heard the saying, if first you don't succeed, try, try again. 
America's adversaries and enemies are working 24-7 trying to undermine our national security and steal our most guarded secrets. Cybersecurity analysts say the solar winds and colonial gas pipeline are only two recent hacking successes. Worse cyber attacks and greater dangers to U.S. national security are coming. Well, joining us is former Defense Intelligence Agency officer Rebecca Koffler. She's author of the book Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Rebecca, it's a pleasure to talk with you. So I know China may be our greatest threat, but of course, you're also concerned about Russia. Why? What is President Putin up to? What's his strategy? Hi, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, if I may, I would like to correct you okay. uh, because Russia has been designated as the top threat uh, to U.S. security by none else uh, but General Van Kirk himself. He's the commander of NORTHCOM and NORAD, North American Airspace Defense Command. This is the combatant command that protects America from missile attacks. And so this general uh, recently has stated clearly and unequivocally that Russia is the top threat. With regard to Putin's strategy, cyber attacks is just one prong of a multi-phase, multi-prong strategy that is designed to defeat and destabilize the United States. Well, I've, I've been told by a number of cybersecurity analysts that non-government Russian hackers are mostly interested in extorting money from wealthy companies, individuals, like the Colonial Pipeline, the JBS meat producer, uh, those cyber attacks earlier this year. So how does Vladimir Putin use cyber attacks like those to his advantage? Well, first and foremost, uh, we must remember that it's a classic Russian intelligence tradecraft to use third parties to uh, perform operations that advance the goals of the Russian government. What do they want to do here, Rebecca? Do they, they want to shut down our power grid or uh, nuclear secrets or what? What are they after specifically? Uh, sure. Well, um, cyber is actually a weapon, and it is a weapon based on uh, Russian doctrine, and they have designated cyber as a battlefield akin to air, sea, and ground, right? So, and this tool is pretty flexible the way that they designed it. If we are not in the wartime period, the shooting wars Joe Biden uh, has referred to, then attacks, devastating attacks on our critical infrastructure are, are not likely, meaning they're not bringing the power grid down. They only intend to A, exfiltrate information to quote unquote prepare the battle space and also to destabilize the society. Because when our companies are attacked and they pay ransom and uh, these attacks cause shortages, whether it's in our meat and uh, burger supply or in our gasoline, that weakens our society and um, undermines it. So, but during wartime, you'd better believe it, the Russians have a doctrine that cyber is able to hit in one spot that will be very, very uh, precisely targeted 
that the entire system will collapse. At least that's what they expect. And you'd think in the aftermath of the solar winds and colonial pipeline and the JBS attacks that a massive effort would be underway to better protect corporate and government servers, but I suspect that hasn't happened. Why not, Rebecca? That That's actually a puzzle to me um, as well. I am completely stunned that the Russians have been hacking our networks for more than 20 years. The first uh, covert cyber operation by the Russians was codenamed by our cybersecurity researchers, the Moonlight Maze. It took place in the 90s, where they exfiltrated massive amounts of data out of government, military networks, uh, all, all the way to weapons labs. And so for years, we've been talking about, everybody's talking about both administrations, actually, Republican and Democrats. You know, Dan Coates, the former uh, director of national intelligence under President Trump, kept saying how the lights are blinking red, referring to uh, the Russian uh, threat, including cyber attacks, but nothing has been done. And uh, it, it's puzzling. Uh, my assessment is that A, it's costly, right? And the companies want to save money. Um, and uh, But actually, they must do that because in the long run, they're going to lose a lot more money. And as far as the government is concerned, the government is simply incompetent in implementing very effective strategies. Look, they allowed uh, Kaspersky software, which is uh, run by the former, quote unquote, KGB officer, uh, the quote-unquote antivirus software run on government networks. I mean, how more incompetent does it get? Okay, well, we're looking for competence from our government now and from co corporations, and let, let's pray uh, that they do something before it's too late. Rebecca Koffler, former DIA officer, intelligence expert, author of the book, Putin's Playbook, Russia's Secret Plan to Defeat America. Thank you, Rebecca, for sharing those insights with us. Thank you. My prayers as well. Terrorist parents or a political agenda at the Department of Justice? Attorney General Merrick Garland is getting pushback over his directive to investigate parents for verbal threats made at public school board meetings. A growing number of parents around the nation are challenging their schools over pornographic library books and also critical race theory instruction. So are threats made at heated school board meetings reason for a legitimate criminal concern or just another effort to stifle and silence criticism? Well, here to weigh in is Kimberly Herman. She's general counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation. Kimberly, it's good to have you with us. So your thoughts on this. Are any of these school board meeting threats uh, worth investigating? You know, when you actually look at the threats, as they are called um, by the attorney general and by the National uh, School Board Association, they're nothing more than public comments, right? We may have a few parents who raise their voices um, they may get upset. These are very heated and emotional topics, uh, but they certainly are not threats. If they are, they should be handled at the local level of government, um, and they certainly do not rise to domestic terrorism, which is what the attorney general is actually looking at labeling parents who simply want to speak up on behalf of their students and of, of their children. Yes, I, I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to get you. That's basically, that could be at the ballot box. It could be a recall, whatever. It's another thing to say, I'm going to blow up the school or blow up your house or something. Now, that would be an act of terrorism. So what do you think prompted this announcement by the U.S. Attorney General? 
well, we all know that what prompted it uh, was a letter by the National School Board Association. Uh, they wrote a letter to Attorney General Garland asking him to label parents who speak up at school board meetings, and I'm saying literally just speak up. They want to talk at public comment and raise issues of awareness to other parents and to label them as domestic terrorists. A mere four days later, the attorney general came out with a memo ordering the FBI to investigate, uh, surveil, and to then potentially punish parents who were simply exercising their democratic right. So there was certainly coordination, and some of our friends have actually exposed that coordination. Um, so we, we know it happened, and that is what led to this memo. And here in Virginia during a debate last week, former Governor Terry McAuliffe, who's hoping to be elected again as governor, said, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And McAuliffe's comment came uh, and caught the attention of a lot of voters here, and it's now being used by his opponent in a political ad. So do you agree, Kimberly, or disagree that public school teachers, not parents, should decide what to teach their students? Parents should absolutely have an impact on what they're being taught to their students. And that's why we have public comment. That's why we have a democratic process. That's why we see parents across our country running for school committee or running for school board, because they want to have a say in what is happening in their kids' classrooms. That is how our country is set up. That is our system of federalism. The federal government should not be dictating what local governments have in their schools. The parents and the community should be the ones making those decisions through the democratic process. Run for your school board, speak at the meetings. It's very, very important to get out there and advocate for your children. Hasn't the U.S. Supreme Court consistently defended the First Amendment right to free speech? Why should Americans be so concerned about this? If Garland's directive is challenged in court, isn't he likely to lose? Well, I believe that he would lose because what they are trying to do is chill speech, right? And so you are absolutely correct. The U.S. Supreme Court has said that the government cannot suppress speech and it cannot chill speech. But when you have an order by the attorney general of our country saying that he's going to put the full force of the FBI behind his order and surveil and watch and punish parents for speaking their mind, their speech is necessarily going to be chilled because nobody wants the FBI or the Department of Homeland Security knocking down their door and punishing them. I mean, there's a real potential criminal sanctions, right, that could be brought against these parents. So it is going to chill their speech, and they would certainly have a phenomenal First Amendment claim in response. But it should never have to get to that, right? Parents shouldn't have to wait until they're criminally sanctioned uh, to fight for their First Amendment rights. Those rights are God-given, and they should be able to speak out at these meetings. Okay, you've given us a lot to think about. Kimberly Herman, General Counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation. Thank you, Kimberly, for sharing those insights. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. How many Americans and people worldwide have needlessly perished from COVID-19 because we've emphasized prevention over treatment? Well, now there's some promising news. The Merck Corporation is requesting that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration grant emergency approval for use of the first non-ejection treatment for the virus, an antiviral pill that people can actually take at home. Merck says testing shows use of the drug malnupiravir cuts hospitalizations and deaths by half 
among patients with early symptoms of COVID-19. Folks, once approved, this would be a major breakthrough. Vanderbilt University Medical Center Dr. William Schaffner explains. The Merck company has submitted all this information to the Food and Drug Administration. They have to study it very, very carefully, look at the benefits, but also look at the side effects of the drug. And then everything going well, my fingers are crossed, we would get an emergency use authorization, perhaps as early as eight weeks from now. At the moment, people who are newly infected have to come to special treatment centers to receive their intravenous infusions. We could give them now, uh, or in the future, a prescription. They could go to their pharmacy and take their medication the way they do other medicines. This would allow us to treat many more people much more quickly, and we trust much less expensively. So treating the virus at home, preventing it from multiplying in your body, and thus reducing its severity, and hopefully avoiding hospitalization. This new Merck pill may provide people in third world countries with a more affordable and easily accessible way to save lives. Folks, the FDA should act quickly to give emergency use approval for this drug before Christmas and before another worrisome wave of COVID-19 possibly takes hold this winter. CBN News medical reporter Lori Johnson says once it's given the go-ahead by the FDA, the sooner people take the pill when they have the onset of symptoms, the better. Some doctors say yes, definitely 24 hours is ideal, maybe 48 hours, even 72 hours. But you want to try to get it before the virus starts to replicate you know, extensively within your body. And so uh, remember, Tamiflu has only been on the market for about 10 years before that. When you had the flu, it was basically, you know, you treat the symptoms and you just had to let it run its course. And Tamiflu came on the market and it's really a wonderful drug. And so hopefully these antivirals will have will be as successful. To, for COVID as Tamiflu is to the, to the flu. Yes, some people may prefer treatment over vaccination. But just like the flu shot and Tamiflu, the combination of vaccination and treatment may be just what the doctor ordered to put this pandemic behind us once and for all. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.